The Death of Darcy Allen Shepherd. I don't believe this case needs any introduction because it was recent and it's been the most polarising case I've ever covered. But for those who need a very simplified and carefully worded refresher, one 2009 night on a busy Toronto street there was a violent confrontation between Darcy Allen Shepherd, a bike messenger, and Michael Bryant the former Attorney General of Ontario who was driving a convertible. The end result was that Darcy died of his injuries at the scene and Michael Bryant was charged with criminal negligence causing death and dangerous operation of a motor vehicle. The charges were dropped after a special independent prosecutor brought in from out of state to avoid a conflict of interest decided there was little chance of a conviction. But this evidence that the special prosecutor referred to was not released publicly, and the decision left many with questions. So in the years that followed, Darcy's family and supporters applied for case documents under Freedom of Information, and the documents they received told a different story to the one heard in court the day it was announced the charges were dropped. To those who engaged with the series, I wanted to thank you for listening and thanks also for your kind messages and words of support. Quite a few people said they appreciated how detailed and in-depth it was. And I also heard that it challenged perceptions of the case that had been influenced by media coverage at the time. Some people told me that when they listened to the series, they realized that there was so much more than meets the eye. The comment section was lit. And I am aware that some listeners may not have finished the series or liked it. It's certainly not the typical story that true crime podcasts tend to focus on, but we all know that not all cases are for everyone. I also don't, or should I say can't, run this podcast as a content farm. It's still very much my passion project, and every case that I cover is chosen for a reason. So, as those who listen to the whole Darcy Allen Shepherd series know, I started to receive some complaints that I was biased in my coverage of the case. Personally, I had no doubts in that area, but as an introspective person, my first thought was not to dismiss, but to double-check. So I researched the definitions of bias in research and academia and in storytelling, and then I reviewed my work so far through that lens to make sure there wasn't anything I missed. At the start of part five of the series, I explained that bias in storytelling is when facts are cherry-picked to portray a certain narrative, and those that don't support that narrative are omitted. This often happens when a person goes into a story with a preconceived conclusion in mind. I was reminded of the Making a Murderer documentary from a few years back, about the murder of Teresa Holbach. Now, this documentary was presented in such a compelling way that it left viewers, including me, feeling that a great miscarriage of justice had occurred and Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey must have been framed and therefore wrongfully convicted. Since then, the documentary has become quite controversial, with criticisms that the documentary makers were pro-Stephen Avery and went into the project with the wrongful conviction narrative in mind, omitting facts that were incriminating to Stephen Avery. I have to note that obviously the situation is different when it comes to Brendan Darcy. So if we go back to the Darcy Allen Shepherd series, I reviewed everything, 
There was no cherry picking or omitting of facts. In fact, I went completely overboard, laying out all the facts painstakingly, repeatedly, making sure I used precise language and the correct choice of words. And believe me, it wasn't because I didn't want to be accused of bias by listeners. I did it that way because I didn't want any actual threat of legal action by involved parties. When you're effectively criticizing the elite legal establishment, there is an element of risk there. So in my efforts to not leave anything out, some listeners complained that the series went too far in depth and that it was too long and repetitive. On this one, I do agree. When looking back in hindsight, I can see that there are definite opportunities to cut things down. As part of the feedback about bias, some people told me that they will respect me more if I just own up to my opinions and stop saying that I'm neutral. They tell me that they like my old stuff better than my new stuff. Aussies, I'm showing my age with that one. And they threaten to unsubscribe if this becomes a trend. Here's the thing. I've never said that I'm neutral. I said it would be fair and balanced. And I do give contextualizing comments as part of this podcast. Otherwise, it would just be rehashing of stories that have already been told. I don't cherry pick or omit evidence or facts, but I do try to contextualize things. And I've realized that in some people's eyes, those comments amount to bias. And it's clear that there's no changing their minds. But I've always made comments like this. They are certainly nothing new for this podcast. And you can see that in cases I've covered like Ezekiel Steffen, Richard Oland, Karen and Krista Hart, the Mayerthorpe tragedy and all the cases involving Mr. Big Stings that had ethical problems. I also did it in cases like Miranda Peters and the Saskatoon freezing deaths to name just a few. I've realized that at the end of the day, it's not my contextualizing comments that some people have a problem with. It's just that they don't agree with some of them. And I understand that I'm not for everyone. And this podcast is not for everyone. And that's okay. So when it comes to the accusations of bias, I explained all this in part five of the series and asked people if they want to continue to complain about bias, please come at me with specific examples. Not just that I sounded biased. So after the series was finished, I waited to see what anyone might say. And I actually did receive some fairly tersely worded legal criticism from some lawyers not related to the case. And I will admit that I was nervous at first. But when I looked into each point that they made, it ended up reading to me as a defense of the legal establishment and the fact that I dared to criticize it. One lawyer told me that the special independent prosecutor deserved respect and, quote, for you to question his integrity and imply he was somehow letting off a fellow lawyer was shocking and appalling. I got to tell you, I'm a nobody, an indie true crime podcaster with a basic business degree who records in her basement and prefers to keep a low profile otherwise. So it's kind of funny to hear lawyers so outraged that they message me to complain that I would dare critique one of their own. I'm also not someone who ever supports the status quo or keeping things the way that they are. So no matter what background or qualifications a person has, regardless of whether they're a celebrity or of being carefully selected by the government to do a particular task, 
No person is entitled to blanket trust and respect in perpetuity. To remain in good standing, I believe that they need to continue to demonstrate through their words and actions that the trust is still earned. And if not, then they must expect an impact to their trustworthiness and credibility. I have more to say about that in a minute. But first, the most solid legal criticisms I received was that I didn't overtly state that it was Michael Bryant's absolute right to not give a statement. And I also didn't overtly state that it is his absolute right to view the disclosure or the evidence against him. These are legitimate critiques and something that I should have stated, and I have made a correction note. But I also have something to say about this. I feel that out of the totality of all the information that I presented, these are very niche things to focus on and they actually misrepresent the points that I did make. Another lawyer told me, quote, I find it troubling that you would hold it against the accused to simply exercise his right to remain silent. Now, I explained this many times during the episode, i.e. repetition. But the problem wasn't that Michael Bryant was able to view the disclosure or the evidence against him, and it wasn't that he chose to remain silent at first. It's the combination of these and more factors. The coin has two sides. Absolutely, an accused has the right to stay silent, and they have the right to change their mind and give an unsworn statement in a without prejudice interview seven months after the incident, after they'd seen the evidence. They do have all those rights. But what they don't have is the right to expect their credibility will not be called into question. Regardless of the right to silence or disclosure, the longer a person waits to give a statement, the less credible they appear, and we the public have a right to question that credibility, whoever the statement comes from. Someone else who appears to be from the legal community sent me a few additional points of complaint. They said that I repeatedly say in the version of events presented in court that day by the special prosecutor and supported by the defence could not be considered fact because they were never tested in court. The listener pointed out that while this is true, no other witness statements were tested in court either, nor was the collision reconstruction report. My response to that complaint is this. I did state multiple times throughout the series that none of the evidence has been tested in court, including all the eyewitness statements and the collision reconstruction report, multiple times. And that was my point. None of it had been tested in court, yet only some of it was presented that day. This person goes on to complain that I also failed to mention the problems with eyewitness testimony how it's notoriously unreliable at best. But again, I did speak about all of this in part three of the series. I quoted studies that show eyewitnesses can provide very compelling legal testimony, but caution should be used because people don't remember experiences perfectly. I stated that their memories are susceptible to a variety of errors and biases. They can make mistakes in remembering specific details, and can even remember whole events that did not actually happen. I also stated that mistaken eyewitness evidence can lead to wrongful conviction, so it needs to be used with caution. 
In that context, the person and several others also complained that I relied too much on the eyewitness statements given by Steve and Victoria and all the other eyewitnesses mentioned in the collision reconstruction report. My response to that complaint is that in the case of Darcy Allen Shepard, the whole sequence of events took less than 30 seconds, but it was over a stretch of 100 metres, so there was a lot of action and detail for witnesses to observe in a short period of time. As I said several times during the series, while there were differences and things that these 19 eyewitnesses said they saw, a comparison of the details they provided reveals commonalities and areas of overlap, things that multiple people said they saw. And I stated that it's not confirmation that it's the absolute impartial truth, but it's certainly a much better indication than perhaps just one person's recollection might be. Another complaint was that while I pointed out that process followed in the case was not usual, I failed to mention some other processes that were also unusual. For example, Michael Bryant being arrested without a warrant is the exception, not the rule, and his release without a bail hearing is at the police's discretion. It is not unusual at all. But again, this is a mischaracterization. I did not point out that the process was unusual. I said that media outlets reported that Bryant was given preferential treatment by the police because he had a suit delivered, was able to take a shower, and because he was released the next day before he'd had a bail hearing. Now, if I did come into this story with some biased agenda, it would have been very easy for me to leave listeners with the impression that Michael Bryant did receive preferential treatment. But I didn't. I went on to provide the counter-arguments to each part of that criticism, that Michael was entitled to have a suit delivered, and that like anyone else in a similar situation, he had the opportunity to use the washroom before leaving for whatever purpose he wanted. I reported the statements of clarification from Toronto Police, who said his treatment was not preferential and that it wasn't that unusual for the accused in similar cases to avoid a bail hearing and do fingerprinting and mugshots at a later date. I pointed out that Michael Bryant actually spent more time in a cell than the average person because of his high profile. Another lawyer took issue with the fact that I mentioned the case should have gone to a judge and jury, where the evidence would have been tested and the proceedings would have been more transparent. Their perception was that I believed an open trial process is the only solution to ensure a correct assessment of the facts and to get justice. They wanted to let me know that juries make mistakes all the time and assured me that the special prosecutor surely has a better understanding of the complexities and needs to be given the benefit of the doubt. My response to this is the same thing I said in the podcast. I don't know what justice would be in this case, but what I do know is that with a trial, the process would have been fuller and far more transparent. The Shepherd family would have been able to see the exhibits admitted into evidence, that eyewitnesses were cross-examined appropriately, and that all appropriate checks and balances were present. Instead, they were left with many questions. So when it comes to giving the special prosecutor the benefit of the doubt, I wanted to point out again that a prosecutor is not required to give reasons for withdrawing charges. 
So why did this one decide to do just that? I spoke about the fact that just a few weeks after Darcy's death, a politician from Alberta named Raheem Jaffa had been stopped by police north of Toronto and was later charged with drunk driving, cocaine possession and speeding charges. But when those charges were withdrawn with no reason given, which of course is typical, there was public backlash. Now, Michael Bryant's hearing was just two months after that. So imagine the outcry if a second, more high-profile politician's driving charges in the Greater Toronto area were also withdrawn with no reason given. The special independent prosecutor appointed by the government made a choice to explain why the charges were withdrawn. He didn't have to. And as I said, the public prosecution guidelines state that they have a key duty to be fair and to maintain public confidence in prosecutorial fairness, not just confidence from fellow legal professionals. The guidelines state that justice must not only be done, it must be seen to be done. So my opinion as a Canadian citizen and member of the general public is that if he is unable to explain his decision in a way that visibly aligns with the guiding principles of the Crown Prosecution Service, if he expresses personal opinions on the evidence and states things as fact when they are not proven or tested, then he must face the natural consequences of that. So that's really all I've received when it comes to legal criticism. There were a few other complaints. One listener said they were so frustrated that so little attention was given to the Scopolidi evidence, which is those six incidents that the special prosecutor presented as evidence of Darcy Ellen Shepard intimidating and harassing other drivers. The listener wanted to know why I didn't go into each incident in more detail like I did with some of the other points. Well, the reason is that there were no other details to go into. Because unlike the collision reconstruction report, that evidence was never released publicly. We don't even know what their real names are. So the only information on those incidents is what was presented in court that day. And I did not leave a single detail out of my episodes. Darcy was only positively identified in one of the incidents where he was photographed clinging onto the side of a BMW after complaining that the vehicle had cut him off. An office worker took photos of the incident, and the day after the hearing, those photos were published in the Toronto Star, along with more details about that particular incident, because the journalist spoke to the driver of the BMW. Again, I included every single detail they published, including the comment from the BMW driver who said Darcy was, quote, acting aggressively, insanely, sociopathically so. Now, it's been pointed out to me that this somehow proves that he did the same thing to Michael Bryant that night. I'm told that Bryant must have been terrified to have a wild man suddenly clinging to the side of his car, and I'm sure he was. But we can't forget that even in Bryant's own version of the story, Darcy only latched onto the car after it accelerated into him, carrying him forward two car lengths on the hood, dumping him on the road, crumpling his bike underneath, and then reversing to drive away. It's only then that Darcy got up and ran after the car. 
So that brings us to the end of my response to the Darcy Allen Shepherd feedback. Yes, I also made an embarrassing mistake in pronouncing a Jewish word, which I'm not going to repeat right now. Apologies to all Jewish people. As I said earlier, I don't know what I don't know. But the reason I described the series as polarizing was because there was also lots of really great feedback. And I wanted to paraphrase a really thoughtful comment left by a listener on the Darcy Allen Shepherd page of our website because the sentiment was expressed so eloquently. The listener wrote that we don't have to like Darcy Allen Shepherd to sympathize with his heartbreaking childhood or to know that he was beloved. The fact that he was also a train wreck has very little to do with the legal dimension of his fateful encounter with Michael Bryant and everything to do with putting Darcy on the spot in his condition with a temperament that tragically escalated events. And we also don't have to like Michael Bryant to acknowledge how he was also beloved, admired, accomplished and connected. And like Darcy, those facts also had very little to do with the legal dimension of their collision that night. But those facts are also absolutely pivotal to due process. Quote, What makes it all so compelling and confounding is both personalities have become proxies, symbols of the asymmetries in play, elites against plebs, cars against bicycles, wealth and privilege against poverty and crime. The listener goes on to say that the law does not exist to reconcile these disparities. It's meant to dispense justice as the system has codified it. And the same justice system can also be perverted to serve people with means, power and connections much more favorably. But in this case, it really served no one, including us. The listener goes on to write that the best and most imperfect instrument for that purpose is trial by jury in an open court, but that will never happen. Michael Bryant could have put his version of events before peers and had it tested under oath. He refused, which is his right. But even though legally he's been vindicated, the court of public opinion has imposed its own sentence, quote, a thwarted political career and attaching a stench to the man that no self-authored book can quite dispel. Still, Michael Bryant continues to have the last word over and over and over again. The listener ends their comment by stating that Darcy's children deserve an honest and fair account of what happened to their dad, warts and all, and it should be a matter of public record. Quote, May it help them understand a father who will be forever beyond them, and also know a peace that so eluded him. I think this listener really got to the crux of the issue. Many critics have assumed that I was somehow arguing that Michael Bryant got away with murder and should be sent to prison. But it's not even really about Michael Bryant. It's about the justice system, a system that's supposed to be set up to allow transparency and accountability and due process. Whatever justice is in this case, it was definitely not seen to be done. And that's my point.